Good morning. Let me uh, ask you to turn in your New Testament to uh, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 9. And as you're locating that, um, let's take just a moment and uh, be quiet and still before God and ask for His Spirit's work to be uh, with us as we um, prepare to hear from him. Holy Spirit of God, you know how profoundly and deeply we rely on you. And you know that none of this is possible. None of this coming together, none of this praying, none of this singing, none of this listening is possible for us without you. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask today that you would facilitate this conversation. Allow us to hear from our God Allow us to be responsive in our spirit. Help us to wrestle well with your word. And somehow in the mix of all of that, holy God, transform us. Our prayer now is that Jesus would be seen and that all else would fade. For our goal and our prayer is that he would be glorified. In his name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 9. As Jesus was going down the road, he saw Matthew sitting at his tax collection booth. Come, be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. And that night, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to be his dinner guests, along with his fellow tax collectors and many other notorious sinners. And the Pharisees were indignant. Why does your teacher eat with such scum? They asked his disciples. And when he heard this, Jesus replied, Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. And then he added, Now go and learn the meaning of the scripture. I want you to be merciful. I don't want your sacrifices. For I have come to call sinners, not those who think that they are already good enough. We'll ask God to bless this reading, his holy and inspired word. Amen. So this morning, as uh, you have noticed already, we are starting a new fall series. um, And we are calling this series, Holy Surrendered. So uh, it's just a guess, but you might hear that song uh, once or twice more before we're done uh, with the series. Holy Surrendered. And the idea, the main idea uh, for this series started sort of percolating in my thinking uh, a number of years ago. And uh, for a number of years, many of you know that I have uh, um, just had the the, uh, privilege of being connected with the uh, Midland County Adult Drug Court Program. And in my time... Uh, walking alongside addicts as they um, 
discovered that recovery was not only possible, but that it was possible for them. And as they began to experience new life and then share that life with others, uh, I just continued to be amazed at the sort of before and after pictures that we would see. And the reality of transformation, the reality and the possibility of new life and freedom uh, that I was seeing over and over and over again in the lives of these addicts. And so as I was watching these amazing stories of transformation unfold all of the time, um, I made a couple of observations. One of the observations that I've been making is that uh, addiction is a spiritual problem and recovery requires a spiritual process. So addiction is a spiritual problem and recovery requires a spiritual process. It requires a spiritual answer. And the 12 steps in the 12-step movement are deeply connected to Scripture. Uh, Some portions of Scripture more than others, but uh, the 12 steps uh, in some places are self-consciously connected to places like the Sermon on the Mount and the book of James and some of the other teachings of Jesus. And so uh, I I don't want us to be naive about addiction. And there are other aspects besides the spiritual aspect uh, to addiction. Uh, There are social aspects and psychological aspects and neurological and physiological aspects to addiction. They're all a part of the complex challenge of addiction. But I believe that at its heart, at at its root, there is an underlying spiritual void or maybe um, a spiritual displacement that, that sort of drives and fuels addiction. So addiction is a spiritual problem. I, I believe that uh, deeply. The second observation that I want to make is this. This might sting a little bit. It stings me. Uh, the church is largely incapable of speaking to that spiritual void or that spiritual displacement that drives addiction. We're largely incapable of it. And we're so incapable of it that we've even come to believe that it's not even our job. If somebody is going to recover, if somebody is going to uh, recover from an addiction, uh, the place to do that, we believe, is in a 12-step group or a clinic and not the church. And so addiction has a spiritual undercurrent that requires a spiritual solution, and the church is largely incapable or resistant to providing what is needed. And so I began asking the question. I've been asking this question for a long, long time, watching addiction in my own family of origin, watching addiction processes in drug court, watching addiction processes in the community, What is it that the church has to learn from the recovery movement? What is it that the 12 steps can teach the church? And uh, as I ask that question, uh, more and more and more, it becomes really clear. Here's what becomes clear to me. Here's, Here's what has become clear to me. That the very first thing that we need to learn... Uh, and, and by learn, what I, what it, if the recovery movement, if the 12-step 
uh, program has has originally learned from Scripture, uh, then they are then this isn't something that we need to learn, but it's something that we need to be reminded of by those who originally learned it from us. And that is this, that we are all addicts. We're all addicts. Every one of us is an addict. And so the question this morning is, what if that is true? What if it's true that we are all addicts? If everyone in the room... And, and, and when I say that, my goal is not to diminish... The, the, the challenge of uh, substance addiction and some of the unique um, dark realities that recovery requires uh, for a drug addict or an alcoholic. And I'm not saying that all of us are drug addicts and alcoholics. But what I'm saying is that if we're listening to what the 12-step movement has to say, if we're listening to the thing that they originally learned from the Scriptures... What, we've, what we learn is that we're all addicts. And, and fundamentally, we're not in a place to share healing, to be a place of healing, a community of healing and grace until we understand that. So, what if it's true that we are all addicts? Let's uh, look at the story in Matthew, because I think that Jesus is approaching something really similar to what we're saying here. Jesus isn't using the language of addiction, but he is using the language of disease. And he's approaching what we're saying this morning. Look at verse 9 again. As Jesus was going down the road, he saw Matthew sitting at his tax collection booth, and he said, "'Come and be my disciple.'" Um, so Matthew got up and followed him. So what I want to say right at the very beginning of this series uh, is, is to address uh, um, a resistance that, that comes up from time to time, uh, particularly in this congregation, that, this, that, that, that the goal of this series, the goal of our work together, is not just simply to be self-reflective or introspective. The goal is not just simply to rehearse pain and to rehearse our history and to, and to look inside and, and delve into deep, dark secrets. The goal is not to know self better necessarily. It's important, but not sufficient. The goal is not just to know self. And it's also really important to say that the goal here is not just simply to know Jesus. Right? Uh, the, the invitation of Jesus here, it, it, it's not, hey, Matthew, uh, I have a lecture that I would like you to attend, and I have some information that you need to get into your head. The goal is not to read biographies about Jesus, or know about Jesus, or learn from Jesus. The reality is far more active and far more profound than that. What Jesus says to Matthew is, Come, follow me. That's active. It's engaged. He says, come and follow me. And, and, and as we follow after Jesus, as we respond to that invitation to follow Jesus, here's what begins to happen. It isn't just that I know more about Jesus, but I actually become like Jesus. 
I actually become somebody who resembles Jesus in the way that Jesus does life, the way that an apprentice becomes somebody who resembles her master. And then as I become somebody who follows Jesus and in following Jesus, I become like Jesus. As I become like Jesus, I begin to experience the freedom that Jesus says is possible in life in him. The whole purpose of our work together, the whole purpose of our being together is this freedom that Jesus says is possible. The story just before the one that we've read here about Matthew's call to be a disciple is the story that we looked at a few weeks ago about the paralyzed man who Jesus heals from his paralysis. It's a story about a paralyzed man being set free. And Jesus' invitation to follow him is an invitation to experience that same freedom, that same healing of our paralysis that keeps us stuck. So many of us don't experience that freedom. And that's not an indictment, that's not to shame anybody, but it's simply to say, I know you, and you know me. And I've heard your stories, and you've heard my story, and, and you know and I know that so many of us don't experience that freedom. Even though you may believe in God, your life isn't peaceful. You're not happy. Even though you believe in God, you, you have personal troubles in your life. Intimate relationships that are confused or conflicted. There are significant people in your life that don't understand you or don't love you. You, you believe in God, but, but you're still in a prison, paralyzed by resentment or anger or fear or shame or loneliness or pain or self-hatred or self-doubt or greed or whatever it is. The, the, the list goes on and on and on and on. And you can't get free from that prison. That's not freedom. On a social level, uh, you believe in God. You believe in God. And, and yet, the one single body of Christ, this one unified body of Christ that, 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 our, that, our, that our participation in the life of God introduces us into, this one body of Christ is as divided and polarized by politics and issues as the culture around us is divided and polarized. The church is not known for, for being here for the healing of the nations in the midst of our turmoil and division. The church is known for instigating turmoil and division. And so here's an invitation to freedom. To have freedom in my own life to be set free from the paralysis where I'm stuck, from the disease that is controlling my life. And for us to experience a freedom to be together in an authentic and intimate community that does offer a hopeful alternative to the mess that we see around us. Come follow me.
It's not just about dig into your past a little bit and psychoanalyze yourself. It's not just about brush up on your theology and know Jesus a little bit better. Follow me, says Jesus. Follow me. So who is it that Jesus is inviting? Well, he's inviting Matthew, right? Did you catch that? This is the guy, if you look at the top of the page in your Bible, who wrote the book that we're reading. right? Matthew, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew, is the guy that's being invited here. He's telling, this is autobiographical. He's telling his own story. And sometimes when people write autobiographical accounts, they clean it up and provide rationalizations and, and uh, a, a nicer account of what was happening. And Matthew doesn't do that. Look, listen to how he describes himself. He says, That night Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to be his dinner guests, along with his fellow tax collector, so Matthew is a tax collector, and many other notorious sinners. See, the word other. Matthew is not saying, I invited Jesus, some of my friends, and some notorious sinners, not three groups. Right? He's saying, I invited Jesus and his disciples, and my friends and I, the notorious sinners, were there too. Right? He's including himself in that, in that camp. Matthew sees. Matthew sees his brokenness. He sees his disease. He sees his paralysis. Matthew can see it. And that's how he describes himself among their number. He knows that he's broken. He knows he can't walk. And he knows that he wants to be free. And somehow he has an idea that Jesus is the one who can set him free. And then the Pharisees come along. And the Pharisees know about the notorious sinners. It was their job to know about the notorious sinners. They know about how Matthew was a turncoat on his own people. That he was in cahoots with the occupying armies of Rome. He, he, he knew that Matthew was likely skimming off the top of the taxes, letting his own people suffer financially so that he could get wealthy. He knew all of that about Matthew. It's tantamount to turning his back on God. And so the Pharisees come along and they say, what are you doing, Jesus, eating with these people? And you see the, do you see the, the comparison? Matthew sees, and the Pharisees don't see. The, the Pharisees don't see. They don't understand why Jesus, if he is all that holy, and if he is from God as he claims to be, and if he knows all the scriptures as he claims to know, if Jesus is all of that, why is he eating with these people? And what does Jesus say? He says, ha, 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 that's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. And so this little story, almost verbatim, is in all three of the synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, all tell this story. And Jesus says, that's it. That's what I want you to see. Do you see the difference? That's that's the disease. See, when we think about sin as an addiction or as a disease, uh, we're not saying something new in our day. It isn't that the writer is reading something into the text or, or there's some newfangled twist on sin or we're doing away with sin. This is Jesus' idea. Jesus, 
uses the metaphor of being sick and needing a doctor to describe the condition of both Matthew and the Pharisees. It's a disease. And when we begin to think of sin as a disease, it opens up some new possibilities for what it looks like to be healed, not just forgiven. Thinking about sin as a disease um, gets us past the simplistic idea that sin is really just the bad things that we that we do, right? How, how many of you? How many of you sort of have that equation, right? Maybe maybe you wouldn't write that down on a Bible test, but in your in your heart, there's this simple equation that sin is the bad things that I do, and I need to be forgiven for. And so what do we do, we, right? Uh, I didn't knock off a gas station on my way to church this morning, so uh, I'm good there, no stealing. Uh, didn't wake up in the bed of another uh, person's uh, uh, wife this morning, so I'm good there, no adultery. My kids uh, didn't lie to me about where they were last night, right? So we go through the moral code and we say, we're good, we're good, we're good, we're good. And, and subtly, subtly, there's nothing there. there's nothing there that I need to be responsive to it's part of the reason that we don't like confession there's nothing there that I need to be responsive to I'm pretty good I've got it pretty well together and and there's this there's this idea that begins to creep in it's this Pharisee idea of self-sufficiency right it's it's the Pharisees blindness their self-sufficiency their their self-importance right their superiority and, and, and as the superiority and the self-sufficiency and the, and the blindness comes in, the, Fer, the Pharisees start to create a, a me versus them world. Right? Us versus them. The divisions begin to happen. That's how the disease works. But when I begin to think about sin as a disease, the way Jesus is suggesting here in Matthew 9, when I begin to think about sin as the disease of addiction. Then I'm looking a little bit deeper. And it's not just a, a, a moment to say, oops, sorry, forgive me. But it's, it's I, have, I have cancer and I need desperately to be healed. And sin as an addiction is more subtle than the behaviors that it manifests. And it's not just the behavior, but it's the, it's the impulse behind the behavior. It's the thinking behind the behavior. The sin, the disease, is found in the thinking behind the behavior. Uh, the, 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 the addictive personality is sort of all about, what do I want? I go through life with this, 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 this perception all the time, right? Uh, my, 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 my primary addiction is the addiction to my own thinking, Right? That's, the, that's, the, that's the addiction that we all share. We're addicted to our own thinking. And, and this, this thinking that goes through life and says, what do I want? What do I like? What do I need? What hurts me? What do I prefer? And my whole life is governed by that sort of filter, that sort of thinking and engagement. Richard Rohr says it this way. He says, we are all addicted to our own habitual ways of doing things, our own defenses, and most especially to our own patterned way of thinking, how we process reality. 
That's why in the Beatitudes, just a few chapters earlier here in Matthew, Jesus is trying to interrupt that old, patterned, habitual way of collective thinking. And he, and he says, no, 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 no. The, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. They're blessed. And he says, no, I, I, they're blessed are those who mourn and who have lost things. Blessed are those who are gentle and low. He says, I know that's not the way that you normally see the world and think about the world, but he says, I want to interrupt that way of thinking. It's why Paul, a little bit later in his ministry, says that our transformation begins with the renewal of our mind because we all have stinking thinking. And the renewal of our mind is not, is not, is not, is not just new information. It isn't just, oh, there's some more things I need to learn. If the renewal of my mind is just what I'm learning, then everything that I'm learning will be filtered and categorized according to the same grid that has got me addicted in the first place. The renewal of my mind is not first about what new things can I learn, what new class can I sign up for, what new study can I engage in. The renewal of my mind begins with unlearning, deconstructing, getting rid of. I take off the old before I put on what is new. That's the beginning of healing. And transformation. The stinking thinking of the Pharisees has them in a position where they see Matthew and his friends taking their first steps towards healing. And and, and they criticize that. And they condemn Jesus for making it possible. And it also has them refusing and resisting their own steps towards healing. So some of, some of us here may still be thinking, but I'm not an addict. I don't have an addictive personality. I'm not addicted to any way of thinking. So I want to say two things to that. One is, that, that little voice that's telling you that you're not an addict, that's your addiction. And the second thing is, let me see if I can give you a picture, a little illustration of how my own uh, addictive thinking shows up. And some of you, have, some of you uh, have subtly experienced this. I have a way of thinking that I'm fairly addicted to that has to do when somebody makes an appointment to see me and I don't know what the content of that appointment is going to be. Right? If somebody says, I'm going to come in and we need to talk about uh, small groups or I want to talk about um, this challenge I'm having at work or uh, I, want to, I want to have a conversation about uh, a commitment I'm making. Uh, somebody has a conversation and I know what it's going to be about. I am good to go. I don't know what it's going to be. What do you think I assume? Here's, here's, here's what I'm addicted to, right? I assume the worst. And so I start to just suit up. And if I see that hanging out on my calendar a couple days away, I might say to Cheryl, hey, do you have, do you have any idea what that's, what that's about? <laughs> no, I don't have any idea at all. Hey, that doesn't help. 
And I start to, right, physiologically and psychologically, emotionally, I'm prepared, I'm bracing for an attack. Somebody's going to come in and yell at me. Somebody's going to come in and complain to me. Somebody's going to come in and tell me the things that they don't like. I'm going to get rejected. I'm going to get, uh, I'm, I'm going to get hurt. And I'm prepared for that. I don't want to be unprepared for that. I don't want to be surprised and caught off guard. And that, that way of thinking is not something that I choose to do. It's an automatic response. And it's not that I choose to get my adrenaline going and choose to get my defenses up and choose to rehearse worst-case scenarios. It's just is running on its own. And when I put that on, it's sort of like the warm, comfortable security blanket that one heroin addict described her needle as being. Because it's safe. What's the thinking that you're addicted to? I wonder if you can see... <laughs> now, now <laughs> what, I, what I don't want you to do is every time you make an appointment to give Cheryl paragraphs about what you're coming in for. I, I, <laughs> that won't work either. Don't do that. I'm good. I'm really fine. I am fine. But can you see your own thinking? Can you see your own patterned behaviors, your own... Filters, your own schema. Maybe it's, uh, I can only be safe when I'm with people who agree with me. Or I have to avoid division and conflict at all costs. I have to look out for number one. I'm never going to let somebody tell me what I should do. Maybe it's a, 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 a thinking style that leads to a perfectionism or a hiding, my secrets are mine, and nobody needs to know them. Maybe it's an addiction to the drama in my life, an addiction to black and white thinking, good or bad, for me or against me. What is, what is the version? By the way, if you don't know, it's hard to see what is so automatic. It's hard to see it. If you can't see it, a couple of things. Number one, chances are there's somebody in your life that can see it. Number two, you might consider coming to Faith Walking 101 because there you will have a process to help you see it. There's a Celebrate Recovery group that meets here in Midland. Celebrate Recovery is a great way to see it. Al-Anon, 12 steps, do what you need to do to put yourself in a position where God will use the resources around you internally and externally so that you can see it. Matthew could see it. The Pharisees can't see it. And Jesus says, I came for Matthew. Got to see it. Got to see it. Or we'll always hold Jesus at arm's length. We'll always hold him back. 
not only is my addiction to my own way of thinking habitual and automatic, but it's also ultimately destructive. Right, if you're sitting here thinking, yeah, why, why would I want to do that? My life is actually working just fine. Why would I want to do that? That sounds painful. It sounds personal. And there are all sorts of, and, and you know that one of the things that denial, that addiction does is denial and resistance and rationalization. So let me speak to that for a minute. This is what, this is, this is where Jesus speaks to that. This, Jesus is speaking to the resistance of the Pharisees. He ends with the resistance. He ends with the, why would you want to do this? And he, this is what he says, isn't it? Look at what he says. He says, I want you to be able to show mercy. I want you to be merciful people. I want you to be able to be merciful to people who need you to show them mercy. It, Jesus is talking to Pharisees. He's talking to very religious people who know all the right religious things to do. They have all of the religious knowledge. But they're not merciful. They're not doing the one thing that Jesus says he actually wants them to do. And as long as I am caught in my addiction, I will not be capable of showing mercy to myself or to anybody else. Because addiction, by definition, is self-serving and self-centered. Is it any surprise, then, if we are all addicts who struggle with and maybe even are incapable of being merciful, that we have a hard time as the united, one single body church of Jesus, that we're having such a hard time knowing even how to speak to one another much less knowing how to speak to our nation about mercy and compassion. And whether that is related to the refugees or to race or to the hurricane response in Puerto Rico, Lord, heal our addictions so that we can show mercy. What if we are all addicts? Jesus says, well, that's good news because you are precisely the ones that I've come for. When you see your addiction, when you see the depth of your addiction, Jesus will meet you there. And when Jesus meets you there, you discover that Jesus is for you. And instead of a stern, shaming, rejecting face, it's a face of Jesus smiling over you. And ultimately saying, Rise up and walk. You're free. You're healed. Dance for joy. My prayer is that that will be an experience that all of us have in the coming weeks. Would you pray with me, please?
Lord Jesus, we thank you for your invitation to follow you. And Lord, some of us here today are ashamed of the addictions that we can see so clearly. And we can see um, with great detail the ways that our addictions interrupt our ability to know you and follow you and to show mercy to others. And Lord, my prayer today is that you would um, remove that, that, that weight of shame and, and flood hearts with grace and mercy and the invitation to the joyful freedom that you offer. And then, Lord, many of us are, 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 are not quite sure if we're ready to go there, if we can say it, if we can even see it. And Lord, I also, I also pray that you would provide mercy and tenderness and gentleness as you invite us to come and follow you and to trust you in that following. Whatever you might want to say and whatever you might want to show. Lord, we do love you. And we give ourselves to you this morning. Amen.